Psalm 145. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the, the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord God, we praise you as the king of the universe and our king, and that you have made us members of your kingdom through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that by your word you would strengthen us in our faith and trust in you and cause us to be more thankful as your people. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're looking at Psalm 145 today, and that's because this is Thanksgiving week. And so this is a Thanksgiving psalm. Now, of course, Thanksgiving is not a Christian holiday. It's, a, it's an American national holiday, but we as Christians never want to pass up any opportunity to give thanks to God. And so we will take advantage of this most definitely. And so we're going to consider briefly this morning, and uh, probably a little bit more of a devotional form than usual, Psalm 145. So turn in your Bibles if you're not already there and you've heard it read. And my hope and prayer is that you'll actually use this psalm uh, this week on your celebration, whatever that's going to look like on Thursday. Now, the title of the psalm begins, a, psalm, a Song of Praise of David, or just David's Praise. No other psalm actually has this title, just so you know. This is the only psalm that has this title, David's Praise. So perhaps David viewed this particular psalm with special delight, or maybe he saw it as his best work of praise to God and thanksgiving. It's also written as an acrostic psalm. You can't see that in English, of course, but basically that means like each, each successive line starts with the first letter, or starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So for like in English, you write an acrostic poem, your first line starts with A, second line starts with B, third line starts with C. So that's the way this, this psalm is organized. And, uh, and, the, and the reason that uh, some of the psalmists would do that and poets in this time frame was so that it makes it easier to memorize the psalm. And believe it or not, you can memorize all of Psalm 145. It's really not that long. 
But it also makes it a little bit more challenging, too, when you start uh, reading through psalms that are put together that way, because that's the main organizing principle. But, and so, the categories within the psalms tend to be much broader, as you'll see that this morning as well. But Psalm 145 is a model of praise. It teaches us how to praise, and it can actually be used in our praise of our God, too. I'm sure it's one of your favorites. Uh, The main point of Psalm 145 is that we praise the Lord God, our Lord God, because He governs His kingdom for His glory and our good. We praise our Lord God because He governs His kingdom for His own glory and for the good of His people. And there are three categories of praise that you can easily see in our psalm this morning. So the first in verses 1 through 7, we see that the Lord our God is unsearchably great. In verses 8 through 13, we see that He's universally gracious. And in verses 14 to 21, that He's unrestrictedly generous. And so you'll be able to see that very easily as we go through these three categories. But for a moment, I want to give you a little bit of a preview of what we're going to be doing on on Sunday mornings uh, in the coming weeks. So next week begins Advent, so I'll be preaching through an Advent series this year, and we'll be looking at the first two chapters of both Matthew and Luke. And then shortly, once we begin our new year, we'll start our first uh, series uh, in the Bible, and we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians shortly after the new year begins. So let's take, let's go back and let's look at Psalm 145. The Lord our God is unsearchably great in these first uh, seven verses, and they're organized also very easily. Verses 1 to 2 tell us what to do. Uh, Verses 3 to 4 tell us why to do it. And verses 5 to 7 tell us how to do it. So the what we do, the why we do it, and the how we do it. Verses 1 and 2 simply says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Just like David, our highest duty is to praise the Lord. That's the theme of this psalm. In fact, he ends the psalm pretty much the same way as he begins. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. It's the theme of the psalm. David's committed to praising the Lord God forever and ever, all the way forever in heaven. He's committed to praise God now, daily, on a daily basis in anticipation of glory and in being prepared for heavenly praise. He desires to see it more constant in his own life that he praises the Lord. And just like David, we too are called to commit our life to constantly praising the Lord our God. Matthew Henry, one commentator, puts it very simply and profoundly this way. He says that praising God must be our daily work, no day must pass, Though ever so busy a day, though ever so sorrowful a day, without praising God. We ought to reckon it the most needful of our daily employments and the most delightful of our daily comforts. God is every day blessing us, doing well for us. There is therefore reason that we should be every day blessing Him and speaking well of Him. Very simple statement and very true So why do we perform this duty with with such eagerness? And verse 3 and 4 tells us very simply, because God is great. That's why we praise Him. God, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's why we praise God, because He's so great. He shows us His unsearchable greatness in His Word and what He's done in this world. We can can never exhaust our search 
and our declaration of who He is. And that's really our, our desired goal anyway, is to give God all the praise and all the glory that, that He deserves. Again, from Matthew Henry, he says, His greatness indeed cannot be comprehended, for it is unsearchable. Who can conceive or express how great God is? But then it is so much the more to be praised. When we cannot by searching find the bottom, we must sit down at the brink and adore the depth. Has that ever happened to you? In your time with the Lord, in reading the Word, the truths He declares, how He reveals Himself and His character, what you observe in His creation, how He's orchestrating your life, and sometimes you just get overwhelmed and you just simply need to adore the depth because you're at a loss for words. That's what Matthew Henry's talking about. Where does this praise come from? It comes from an intense work at searching. You have to search it out to find out that it's unsearchable. And we search His Word and we search His works in the world to find out His greatness. It's not just enough to use flowery, you know, words from our theological vocabularies or platitudes that we're used to just repeating about who He is, or even on the other end of the spectrum, just using overly simple words and collapsing everything into just one or two characteristics of who God is. The most popular one today is, oh, God is love. But He's so much more than that, as true as that statement is. And we're to search out His greatness with our minds until we become enthralled about in what we read in the Scriptures about who He is, and it baffles us. And so our mouths just open in praise for who He is. That's the whole purpose of doing theology anyway, is to give better praise to God and to extol His name. Praise is an intensely intellectual activity as much as it is an intensely emotional activity because it comes from the true affections within our soul, what we love and what we set our hearts and our minds on. Notice also that praising God is an impossible task to complete. You can never finish it because if you finished it, then you would have named everything about God. But we can't because we're finite beings, of course. He's too great we can't recount every aspect of His work. We can't even observe them all. And, and we can't extol every aspect of His character in its perfections because we only see so much. And every work of power, we do our best to declare His greatness, but, but we, we can't allow ourselves to stop. In fact, we're going to need some help. And as you see, the psalmist gives us that note right here in verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another. We need to enlist more people in praising the Lord. It's going to require more and more generations of believers to praise the Lord to be able to get anywhere near telling God how great He is. It's going to take believers from every people group, all the different places around the world, to bring to God all the praise that is due His name. And then finally, what we do, why we do it, we pro pro claim how great He is just because He is great, but how we do it comes out in verses 5 through 7. I want you to notice something here that the psalmist does. In verse 5, he talks about himself, I will meditate, the end of the verse. In verse 6, we have somebody named they, and then I again. And then in verse 7, it's just they, whoever they are. So, in verse 5, we read, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, 
I will meditate. He's talking about how we personally need to ponder the unsearchable greatness of God. You know what the first requirement of meditation is? Time. It takes time. You can't meditate on something for a couple seconds. It's going to take a significant amount of time to think about it. That's what meditate means, sort of murmur to yourself over and over in your head about what it is you're thinking about. So this is how we do it. How do we praise God's greatness? How are we going to find out the unsearchableness of who He is? It's going to come through meditation. Meditation in His Word that directs us on how we're to observe the world. The second thing is by, it is by speaking His powerful, awesome acts with commentary. So here, the they, I think, and other commentators would agree, is the general they for the world. They for people out there. And they'll speak of the might of your awesome deeds because they observe them too. But in the context of that, I will even do one better. I will actually tell them about your greatness. That takes a lot of courage. You know, you've been in these situations where maybe you're out, uh, you know, in the woods with someone on a hike who's not a believer and they just are amazed at how beautiful the creation is. Or somebody talks about something marvelous in the world. And as a Christian, our job then is to declare His greatness in that moment. It's much greater than they're observing. And that takes courage. This is another way we extol God's greatness is letting other people know how great this God is that they only seem to be observing little tidbits of who He is and what He's done. And then finally in verse 7, the day is talking about the congregation of the faithful, talking about us. And verse 7 says, here's another way in which we, how we do this. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This takes community. We can't really extol God's greatness that greatly if it's just our voice, if it's just us. We need each other to come together and to sing joyfully of His righteousness and to recount together the types of things we've seen God do in our lives and in our world. It's unsearchable. We could tell stories forever. And so in verses 5 to 7, we're told exactly how we do this. How do we find out God's greatness and how do we declare it? It's by taking the time to meditate in His Word and to meditate on what we observe in the world. It's by having courage to speak to others in our world that don't know Him about who He really is and why He's so great. And once you do the first one, of course, you'll have things to say when it comes to talking to other people because you'll have meditated on it. And of course, it takes third community. It takes us as a church coming together and singing His praise. And we praise the Lord God because He governs His kingdom perfectly for His own glory and for the goodness of His people whom He loves, you and me. And not only do we praise God in the psalm because He's so great, we see that as the first theme. It comes right, right before us. We see the word in verse 3, uh, for very first word, great is the Lord. Well, now in verse 8 through 13, we get to this next section, which talks about His graciousness. The Lord is gracious. We see that it starts in verse 8. And that's the next point. The Lord God is universally gracious. And in verses 8 through 10, we see here that the Scripture proclaims to us this, this ancient revealed character of God. In other words, the psalmist is actually taking us back to Genesis. You probably recognize the words there. And then 
we see in verses 11 to 13 what the saints, what the believers actually proclaim. So, verse 8 says and following, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You've heard that before, right? You've read that. You've read it many, many times in the Old Testament. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. So it's a basic theological truth that we all learned in Sunday school as children, or our parents told us, and that is that God is good. And that's what we read about here. And David is meditating, if you will. He's doing what he just told you to do, told me to do, is to meditate. And that's exactly what we see him doing because he's quoting the Old Testament where God revealed who he is and what his character is like. Those words to Moses that are repeated often in the Scriptures that he's a gracious God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's a lot to think about. And even beyond this, this special graciousness shown to His people, the psalmist also considers here the theological truth that, that God is universally gracious to all that He's made, uniquely to His own people, of course, but, but to all that He has made. He's gracious to all living things, to all people, even He's gracious to His enemies. And Jesus taught that. He's even gracious to His enemies. I mean, He grants them life rather than wiping them out. He gives them supplies. He even brings comfort into their lives. But we as His people take special delight in His graciousness that He shows to us because He's full of compassion toward our weaknesses. That's what it says here in verse 8. He holds back His anger when we refuse Him. He's patient and grants us mercy when we repent. And He even mitigates the effects of our sins so often and gives us comfort and of course, in reading the fullness of Scripture, we know that we have ultimately in Jesus Christ our salvation. And He shows His graciousness to us in Him. Because of His cross and His resurrection, our sins have been completely atoned for. His wrath has been propitiated, appeased. And even more than that, in our own experience in life, we've been set free from the guilt of sin. Our consciences are cleansed. Sin loses its power over our lives. And, uh, and the shame is removed as well because Jesus bore it all. And so, as His people, we delight even more in His graciousness. Verse 10 tells us that all creation returns to give Him thanks, while some, of course, just do it out of their mere existence performing His will, even if they don't even know it. Of course, His enemies actually perform His will too. They do it objectively, but they don't really even know that they're fulfilling it and furthering His purposes. But His saints, that means those of us who believe in Him and put our faith in Him, but His godly ones, those who know Him, those who delight in Him, we do it with hearts full of blessing upon the Lord. In fact, exactly what the saints say is in verses 11 to 13. So there you go. If you think you're short of things to say to God, you can simply repeat, uh, verses 11 through 13. They proclaim the glory of His kingdom and how He administers it in His graciousness. It says, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And here most directly, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
This is what the saints say, especially verse 13, and, and you can see then that basically our role is to be a mouthpiece to the world. We educate the world about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God can be defined very simply as God's reign over His creation, everything. Now, of course, that's a very simple definition. There's a lot more that could be said. It's not full, but it is what it is. The kingdom of God is simply God's reigning over all of His creation as the king of history in His world. And you see, this is our greatest subject of meditation and proclamation is the glory of His kingdom and of His power. It's a great place, actually, to start in sharing the gospel. You know, you can start in a lot of different places with people, but here's a new one for you, maybe, is you can start by just talking to people about the kingdom of God. It's not a topic that most people consider. So it makes it an interesting conversation. We desire, of course, as God's people, to see Him fully honored as the King. And so we tell the world about Him and about this kingdom. This kingdom that's here, it's taken out in many forms throughout the history of redemption, and is going to be coming in its fullness and power and glory like no one has ever seen when Jesus returns. And we want to tell the world about the glory of the kingdom, the text says. So, if you were to read the prophets in the Old Testament and summarize the qualities of the kingdom, which many other theologians have done, there are five main qualities of the kingdom that the prophets spend their time speaking about mostly. And those five things are righteousness, peace, justice, faithfulness, and love. That's your five-point sermon. When you talk to somebody about the glory of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, you can talk to them about righteousness. That's quite an interesting subject. Talk to them about what is true peace and about true justice and true faithfulness and love and where all these things can be found. And we talk to them about the glory of the kingdom because it's gone through so many progressions in the history of redemption. Of course, there's creation where we can begin, but we can talk about how then the kingdom progressed to the time of Abraham and to Moses and to David, to the exile, to the restoration of the people in the land, to the Messiah coming, to the Spirit being poured out on the church, to the millennial kingdom in the future when Jesus returns, to the new heavens and the new earth in its fullness. There is no shortage of topics and things to talk to people about and the glory of the kingdom. And in fact, there's no limit to how much we could meditate on if we go back to that verse earlier in the psalm. These are all things that we can meditate on as well. And we want to tell the world about the power that God has to accomplish all His purposes in His graciousness. And we invite people to become citizens of the kingdom of God, and they do that, of course, by His grace, by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, as you have done. And we tell them about how God administers His kingdom for His own glory and for the good of His people. Those are the two priorities. And of course, much of it is mysterious. Much of it is. Most of it is. God has revealed very little of His purposes to us in some ways, and we are so limited in our wisdom that almost the silliest question to ask and the silliest question to ever try to answer is the question, why? Why does God do it this way? I don't know. 
But God is the one who exercises all His power and His sovereignty over His creation, and He sits in the heavens enthroned, as it says in the Psalms, and does whatever He pleases. And it's so good to know Him, to know that His purposes are goodness and graciousness toward us. So verse 13 tells us about this kingdom, that it's an eternal kingdom. It has no end. It'll last forever, and it will endure forever. God never has, nor will He ever abdicate His throne. He has never shared His glory or power, and He never will. And He will never be able to be usurped by anyone or any spiritual forces in what He does. The kingdoms of men rise and fall throughout the history of the world, and they will continue to do so. And they're all doing it according to His will. But our God sits and reigns in the heavens over all things. And we praise our Lord God because He rules His kingdom for His own glory with mindfulness toward His people and for our good. So not only do we praise God according to the psalm because He's exhibited His unsearchable greatness and giving us His Word and giving us creation to observe and in our lives to live, we also give Him praise because He's universally gracious in the way He does things, but also because He's demonstrated His generosity, which comes out in verses 14 to 21, which is really a subcategory of graciousness in a way. But here we see then His generosity toward His world in verses 14 through 21. So David continues, the Lord upholds all who are falling and rises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. We'll stop there for a moment. So David's praise continues here just to declare all the details of God's graciousness and His generosity toward His world. In other words, these are the details, sort of filling out that meditation upon the glory of the kingdom and how it operates. But I want you to notice something in just these three verses I read, verses 14 to 16. Do you see that the word all appears four times? Well, then if you glance down to verses 17 to 20, it appears six more times. And if you look at the very last verse, you see it the seventh time. The alls are all over the place in this section. In other words, the psalmist is also talking about how God is everyone's all in all. He's available to all. We can go to Him with all of our concerns for everything, and He'll supply all our need because He's our all-generous God. All people are permitted and invited and exhorted to bless His holiness forevermore. And so, in demonstration of the generosity and providence we see in verses 14 to 16, we also see His generosity and salvation toward His saints in verses 17 to 20. So, verses 14 and six through 16 are focused primarily on God's providential care of His creation. And then verses 17 to 20 are primarily concerned with His salvation and the needs of His saints that He gives to His people. So, as we look at verses 14 to 16, you know, here's the king of creation who grants recovery to the weak and joy to the downhearted. He's a king who provides food for all his creatures 
in perfect effectiveness and sustainability. He amazingly and perfectly supervises the whole world in all of its affairs for justice and love and needs just as He sees fit. We praise our King for the generosity that He extends toward His care for the world because that in and of itself is a sign to us that He takes even greater care of us as His people. And so we read then in verses 17 to 20, the Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him and to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. There's another signification you can see in the wording here. You notice God's name, Yahweh, appears four times now in this last section because He is our God and we are His people. We have a personal relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's our King who's righteous in everything He does. All His deeds are righteous. All His deeds are righteous toward His people. Here's our King who's near to us whenever we call upon Him. Whenever we call upon Him in truth, He's there. Here's our King who fulfills our desires when we fear Him and we cry out to Him at our need and He delivers us from our distresses. Here's our King who preserves those who love Him and destroys the wicked who hate Him and who hate His people. He destroys them and He will ultimately destroy them. We praise our God and King for the generosity that He extends toward us in sustaining our lives saving us from our sins, and bringing us into His kingdom. We praise our Lord God for these things. And then in verse 21, we read the Psalm's conclusion. It's a return to a call to worship again, a call to praise Him, just like He began the Psalm in verse 1. We read at the end, my mouth, David is speaking of himself again, right? My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And then he implores everyone else, let all flesh bless the holy name Bless His holy name forever and ever. So David repeats his, his resolution. My mouth will, will extol the Lord. I will praise Him. And he restates its ultimate reality that it's going to be the case that everyone is going to be praising God for eternity. They don't have any choice. And David reiterates its finality. It's forever and ever. And God's glory and glory will fill the whole earth as the prophets speak. And so, again, it's my hope and prayer that David's resolution of heart can be our resolution of heart. As we read this psalm, we use it this week, is to constantly be praising the Lord and meditating on His greatness. That's my hope for Thanksgiving for all of us. I mean, of course, have a great time with your family and friends. But also make it more than that, I would encourage you. A time of joyful Thanksgiving through Jesus Christ our Lord. You might even talk about this passage. I mean, Psalm 145 is a great psalm to read and talk about. In fact, you now know the three categories, so you could just have people share about those things. They could talk about God's greatness. We could talk about God's graciousness. We could talk about His generosity or maybe other aspects of His character that He has displayed. And, and you've seen particular examples throughout the year that have just mesmerized you. I mean, I'm personally very thankful this year uh, for all the family transitions that we've had to go through 
Um, especially with six kids, it seems like they never end. Um, but he's been faithful in all those different transitions that our families had to go through, and ministry opportunities I've had in all around the world this year, and the growth that we get to experience through them. I'm thankful for all those, and of course, I'm most thankful for the fact that God has led us so clearly and faithfully and graciously to come here to Calvary Evangelical Free Church and to be able to minister together with you, to be able to serve you in the purposes of the kingdom. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll finish up our worship this morning. Oh, Lord God, we just give you thanks today. We praise you because we know that your Scripture declares that you govern your kingdom for your own glory. And that's our greatest desire too, and that you govern your kingdom for our good and for the good of all your people. There's such great comfort in that. So, Lord, we praise you for your greatness, your greatness of being. We can't even fathom how you can be so perfect and infinite in all of your character. And we praise you for your actions that you can actually oversee and you cause everything to fall out perfectly according to your will in this world. You are unsearchably great, and you are full of graciousness toward us. That's your very character that you revealed so early in Scripture to us. We thank you that you're this way with us, that you are patient and gracious and merciful, and that you govern your kingdom the same way. And we also praise you for your generosity this morning toward us. You have met our needs. You will continue, you bring us joy, and you produce thanksgiving in your people and a thanksgiving that we have towards you that we express that those who don't yet know you can't even understand how we can be so filled with thanks, thankfulness and thanksgiving towards you. So we pray this morning that you'd be pleased with our worship and our meditations. For Jesus' sake, amen. <laughs> 